Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. All right, welcome everyone to the Table Dallas. We're glad you're here, whether you're joining us live here at uh, the Mill Street House in Old Town, Louisville, or wherever you are around the world via the podcast. We're glad that you've taken time to be with us as we, well, we basically wrap up today. We wrap up our uh, Runaway Prophet series as we prepare for the season of Lent that's soon to follow here. And uh, so far in our story, we've um, we found that God had called this prophet Jonah to warn pagan Nineveh about his judgment and offer them compassion. And as we saw and just read, Jonah refused to go and ran away. So God sends a storm to prevent Jonah running away, and he used Jonah to bring the pagan sailors to worship him. Then he sent a fish to rescue Jonah from the sea, and then Jonah trusted God to save him from death by the sea before the fish vomited him um, safely onto land. But Jonah still hadn't realized God wanted to save pagans too. So Jonah finally agrees, and he goes to Nineveh, and he warns Nineveh, and the city repented, and God had compassion, and he didn't destroy them. And as we saw last week, that made Jonah furious, so furious, that he tried to back God into a corner by essentially saying, like, you could take my life, it's my life or theirs, believing that God would take his, why? Because, or would save his, why? Because, yeah, he's an Israelite and this is a pagan. And it didn't exactly work, right, the way that Jonah wanted it to work. So Jonah, as we pick up in chapter 4, Jonah is sulking. Now, he's moved his sulking from in the city to outside of the city, all right? So he's outside the city and he's sulking. But God, here's the key, God continues to pursue him. We said from the beginning... The reason that we look at the book of Jonah from a moral theological tale instead of a narrative historical, one of the reasons is, right, that the subject and the main character in the story is designed to be God. And when we look at it from a purely narrative historical, we want to focus on Jonah, and we're going to look at Jonah, but remember, God's going to get the last word. Have you noticed that he does that? Yeah, God's going to get the last word. So Jonah is sulking, but God continues to pursue him. So I'm going to ask you, what does this pursuit of Jonah by God, what does that reveal to us about God? That he cares. All right. First of all, that he cared. Okay. What do you mean by that? Like he cares what? Not only does he care about where you're, where you are in your head space, but he's like, I want you to do this, I'm doing it for a reason, so now, I mean, it kind of explains you, or not explains you, but tell you why you're doing this and why you're going to do what I tell you. Okay. All right. I hear, I hear it's almost like the activity of itself didn't really matter. We talked about this before, that God didn't need Jonah to go. The lesson is the more important thing. That's why God pursues him after the job was done. Okay. Um, if it's been all about saving Nineveh, as soon as Nineveh repented, God would have disappeared, and Jonah would have been sitting there by himself. Okay. Mm. All right. Kristen and I were talking this morning about how you reach a point in parenting where you're just like, it's not worth it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, like, 
When we, when we say the word Jonah, we're thinking Jonah the character. But remember, Jonah the character represents all of Israel, his people, those who we call. So it's, uh, there's something we learn about that, right? Somebody else was getting ready. And then we don't want yeah. I, I, I wasn't yeah. getting yeah. ready at the time, but I, I can okay. say I have something on my head, though, on my heart. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I often have struggled with with Jonah is, you know, sadly, I see myself in the story a lot. I identify with Jonah. And, but I've always struggled with that, the phrase um, that God didn't need to send Jonah. And you hear that a lot, you know, in Christian circles and pastors. And the reason that I struggle with it is because I feel like that that's an easy way for us to, one, you know, show respect to the omnipotence of God and who he is. But I think that it's also a simple implication for us to be able to understand the scenario because I think that ultimately God is very complex and that we can't understand him and he limits himself by his promises and the things that he desires and, and, and we are plan A, there's no plan B for reaching the world, you know, as people. God wants to use people. And he clearly wanted to use Jonah because he put up with a lot. You know? and it's like kind of what Liz was pointing out. It's like he just kept coming back to Jonah and back to Jonah. And I noticed something when I was reading chapter 4 that I'd never seen before. That when he said, the very first part where he, in um, it was verse 4, the Lord responded. He asked him twice, is your anger a good thing? And I feel like the Lord is, is impressed that on my heart. You know, is your anger a good thing? You know? But Jonah, it's interesting because it says, but, right? So that means that Jonah didn't actually respond maybe in the way that God had wanted him to. Right? So it says, but then Jonah went out from there, the city, and sat down at the east end of the city. So basically, it, it, that makes me think of a toddler, right? That, that you know, what, is what you're doing a good thing that mommy's asking you to do? But the kid just yeah, almost like pouts and yeah. turns around and says, well, I'm going to do what I want to do anyway. Yeah. You know, it's like God just kept pursuing Jonah. So need is a complex word right. because it's almost like within himself, almost God created a need for himself to go after Jonah. I, That's yeah. a better way to say it. Yeah. That, that God created that need for himself because as we say here at the table all the time, right? So God has always chosen, right, to work his plan of salvation through humanity, right? He wanted, he first wanted Adam and Eve to spread everything, right? To have this and take over and, and have dominion and care for the entire earth. When they failed, right, he said, well, I'm going, to, I'm going to pick up again, right? I'm going to try with Noah, and then he chose, his, he chose the people of Israel here. And so now we have this, and I love that you picked this up. There's this beautiful imagery here that here comes Jonah. Jonah in verses 5 and through the end of the chapter, which is where we'll be focused today. Um, we find that he's moved himself outside of the city, but it looks like it's just a little parenthetical detail. Oh, he went out and sat... On the outskirts. outskirts, but it tells us the direction east. east in biblical, especially for for Jewish believers. Anytime that you are east, east of Eden, you are east of God. You are away from 
That's the imagery here. So Jonah has moved, again, another statement. John, Jonah was obedient. Whether or not he was willing or not, he goes, right? Um, displaying that Israel, at times, does what God wants him to do. But then it, it moved away, and he moves east. <coughs> east of the city to see what God's going to do. And that's kind of where we pick up that story. But I love that pick, that, that God limits himself and creates the need for himself because he chose to. He didn't have to work through the people of Israel. He didn't have to work through Noah and Adam and Eve. He doesn't have to work through us, the church. But he chooses to. All right? So that's a great... Great observation. I like that. Go ahead. Well, he also. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. I, I was thinking he also, you know, even though we say he didn't need Jonah, he did need Jonah because Jonah needs a heart transplant. He needs to be fixed. Yeah. You know, yeah. Just like we all do. Yeah. And, and by the way, that's true. Not only does it represent Israel, but we're also, as we read this, we're supposed to identify as the people of God that, yeah, Jonah is us. We're Jonah, right? Constantly sitting there going. I guess when I hear the word need, I think of like you have the inability to do something. So I think it's more not like God needed Jonah to do something. It's like he right. He created that need. It's more like the parent talk about him being a child. Like you don't leave your kids' tail dishes. You can do it yourself. But you want to teach them something. So it's a want. So because he wants you to do something, he wants okay. you to learn if you've done better. And that's fair. That's fair. So when, so when God, here in verses 5 and 6, when God, in chapter 4, uh, when God asked Jonah if he had a right to be angry, no response from Jonah is recorded. Um, why do you think that is? Remembering, again, Jonah is representative of Israel, humanity, all of us. So why maybe is there no recorded response? From Jonah. I see some smiles over here. You have an answer why? I, I just think of when I talk to Archer and he doesn't like my answer, he walks away. <laughs> <laughs> don't like the question or the, anybody else. What about you guys? Well, when you know you're wrong, you don't yeah. want to verbally admit it. Okay. All right. Wrong in terms of, like, in this case, yeah, it's wrong for him to be angry about God's mercy. Is that what you're saying? There is no non-selfish answer that he can give to try to justify his anger against... Right. The only answer to that is, yet yeah, no, it's not good that I'm angry. <laughs> it's, I mean, that's, that's the presumed answer, right? Is that there's really no answer other than... But, but I think we're, we're allowed to have emotions. Sure. We're allowed to be angry. It's then what do you do with that, right? right? I mean, so... I wonder, along the same lines... And again, let me let me nudge into some heresy here. Um, <laughs> do I have to get out my card? So I wonder if the actual pivotal word there is is your anger. Your anger. Because God was angry at the Ninevites. Right. And that was a good anger. Righteous anger. Okay. Because one, it got it got Jonah motivated through several steps. But got him motivated to take the word, and they repented. Got it. Yeah, go ahead. I get the idea that Jonah really does have a good understanding of God. That um, we we may think, or we may impose upon Jonah that he really doesn't get God and what God's nature is. 
but but I think he really does, and that's why he's silent. He knows what God's up to. He even said it, you're merciful. Um, and so I think he's really in tune with God, even though he is trying to get away from God, give me some space. But he's, I think, really in tune with God. And, and that's true because he says, you know, he quotes... Or words are put in his mouth, right? Are direct quotes from the First Testament, from the Psalms, right? Other places. So when he says, hey, I know you're this kind of God, right? So he can't really claim like he doesn't really understand. But fo immediately following it says he decided, I'm going to go out and go east. Like, I don't like it. So I'm going to make sure I try, once again, it's a, it's a parallel. I'm going to move away from your presence. It's the same thing. It's a parallel, parallel to the first chapter. He still thinks he could somehow, maybe not get on a ship this time, but he that's the imagery of moving east. But here's the question then. So when God asked Jonah if he had a right to be angry, there was no response, right? Um, likely because he realizes there really isn't a good response. Like, yeah, we're your people. We're supposed to like mimic you. We're supposed to demonstrate to the world. How do we say it here at the table? What right relationship with God? each other, and the world around us looks like, so the only answer to that is, uh, no, it's not good. So Jonah takes himself, he goes to the east, what do you think he's, what do you think he's hoping for? So you think that he still thinks that maybe, even though God said he relented and he repented, that's the word, same word, like he repented, and didn't bring, is not going to bring the judgment, you think that he's still hoping, well, maybe if I, if I like, I don't know, throw a tantrum or something, he'll change his mind? Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah I keep thinking on the parent-child relationship. Uh -huh. you know, if I do this, maybe they won't react this way, so I'm just going to sit here. Okay. He's going to repent of his repentance? Question. Okay, go ahead. So he went east, and I understand the whole going away from God, but where is that relative to where he, if he were to go home... Is east the direction of home, or did he actually, is he contemplating, like, whether or not he can go home, because right now he's got to go face his family for God not killing the Ninevites? So, uh, yeah, so uh, the answer to that question lies in how we interpret it. So if it's a narrative historical text, then that is the, the most natural question to ask. Like, why is he not going home? Well, he's afraid of, hey, I'm a prophet. Maybe my I prophesied that in forty days judgment would come. Judgment didn't come, so I'm in I'm in you know in peril of being put to death. Again, that's why I think it is important for us to settle in on how it is that we choose to interpret. Because I don't think I don't think it's a situation where you do both and. I know that sounds really weird. I don't know that you can like jump back and forth between narrative historical and moral theological. Because then you end up with this question of like, okay, so why does he just go home? Maybe he doesn't know how to return. I mean, all of those are, are fair questions, but in a moral theological tale. But in a moral way, he may not want to return home. I think that's maybe what's being suggested. Like, I don't want to be a part of, remember he said this before, last week we saw this, right? You, you may be a part of this... Um, Bigger. Yeah, this this idea that you know that yeah that you love people beyond Israel and I was an unwilling accomplice. That's what accomplice, accomplice, which what we learned at last week. And so he maybe this is just a natural follow up going. I don't really want to be a part of this. I didn't want to be a part of it in the first place. 
I still don't want to be a part of it. And so the narrator of the story says, whoop, plants him over there on the east where he's away. But notice, he's still close enough to see what's happening. Potentially. He goes out to watch them be destroyed. Oh, it's, hold, hold those thoughts real quick because Bill's trying to, he's been doing the, uh, <laughs> I don't want to, you know, mess with you uh, I think he's looking for vindication, approval, a little bit of approval from God that, you know, well, Jonah, you weren't really wrong. They were bad in what they did. So, you know, and Jonah's, I think he's looking for a little vindication still in how he feels. Okay. Well, and he doesn't want. Hold on one second. We got two here. Then you. Yeah, it just feels like Jonah's operating under an assumption that life is fair, um, and he he's getting mad. Like, well, if life isn't fair, I don't want to be a part of it. Just take me out. And God's like, well, my fairness looks different than your interpretation of fairness. But on the boat, he said, just throw me over. It's fair. <laughs> like I put you guys in danger. And now he's sitting back watching to see if life is really fair. Like, I just want to see if my interpretation of how life should be going to play out. So for him, fairness in his mind, taking Jonah as Israel, fairness for them would mean that God changes his mind again and wipes them out because they're pagan people. Yeah. Right? <clears throat> All right, go ahead, Dan. Well, yeah, and he doesn't want to be in the city if God finally decides to change his mind again and actually, you know, well, take the city out. Yeah, I was wondering along those same lines. Again, if Jonah is Israel, and Israel has repented, Israel has uh, been struck down, and we've got this long history of people making bad decisions and getting the punishment, and then coming back to God. I wonder if he's waiting for them to. All right, you did your repentance, but I know what you're going to do. He does. But then, if he's just. If I just wait long enough, they'll get back to pagan. I mean, I wonder if I, I had never thought about that—that that he had he had moved east of the city, yep. which I, that makes sense. That that's a literary device yep. that mirrors the fallenness of Adam and Eve and them going east of Eden. Same thing he did in Gen in chapter one. Yeah. So I'm wondering if. This is an intentional literary device on the part of the writer to remove that fourth wall of the audience and basically pose the question to the audience, you know, is your anger a good thing? You, the Jews, is your anger being, looking at the covenant from the perspective of being east of it is, is your anger a good thing? And, and I wonder if like that's why it's left unanswered because it's really a question for all of the nation of Israel. Is like, is your anger a good thing? Yeah. Well, it's I don't know if it's a rhetorical question, but again, um, somebody point I think you pointed it out, um, Ty, that that this is parallelism because it's the exact same question both times. One that we saw last week when we left off, it was the hanging question. We're going to see it again here, you know, we see it again here in a couple more verses down, where it's basically the same question again, but there's a little addition added to it. So what we're seeing here is, again, literary devices being used, because now there's a contrast. He was angry, that was the word he used, he, we used last week, right? In the first four verses, he was angry, why? In the first four verses, why is he angry? Because God's really 
Because God relented and basically said, God, what you did was evil. He didn't just say, I disagree with it. I wouldn't have done that. I would have brought the hammer, whatever. He says, you're evil. So now we have a contrast. Peter? It occurs to me that, well, I have a question, but I was thinking that in a way this is similar to how when Jesus came, you know, he preached first to the Jews, and then it was, then you have the vision of the tablecloth coming down, and, and that salvation is for the Gentiles as, as well to the whole world. And my question is, how much did this happen before Jesus that God's grace was upon non-Israels, uh, Israelis? Um, you know, God's covenant with Abraham was with Abraham and his descendants. So God was a God of Israel, not just the world's God. And so to for a person to believe in this God, uh, you know, almost implied that you were going to be a part of Israel or the, the Hebrews. And it, he was their God. And I wonder how much, well, A, how much did this happen before the New Testament? In other situations, but B, I wonder how much this was playing with, um, with him that he uh, resented that what God is just going to give all this to all these people, this huge city when he's it's you know they're not Hebrew, they're not yeah. he's taking away from the Hebrew God. So I think there's two things we need to pause on. We're going to be late today. Just. We're staying. Sorry, we're staying. We're staying. We don't finish this, right? Every once in a while, I can just say, yeah. we're asking something. Um, no, I think that's an excellent question because, and it takes us, we have to pause for a second to remind ourselves of how we, how we view God and how they would have viewed God. So, um, use the word earlier, Ty used the word omnipotence, right? Which is a perfect example of how in the Greek Western mind, when we think of God, we think attributally. Yes? The attribute, God is this, 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 and this. In Hebrew thought, God or gods are not attributal. They are positional. positional. So you have this idea of the gods, and the Bible uses that word, God, Elohim. We translate it lowercase g sometimes um, to communicate that um, idea that the Elohim, the gods, were regional. They, they existed up on a plane above humanity, but they were given, Psalm 82 suggests that they were given areas, territories, to which they were the gods. So when you move from one territory to the next, in Hebrew thought, you're in danger of leaving your god. David talks about it. Didn't want to go over, right? When he was running away, he's like, I don't want to go over here to the land of the Philistines because... God's not there, he's here. Mixed in throughout all of this is God in little stories in the First Testament where he goes, okay, it is that. I am your people, but, you know, the Shulamite woman, the, you know, Balaam, you know, and you have all of these little stories, Peter, where he's, he's starting to give them the message that, that I'm not the narrow in the box that you put me in. Well, he's not in the narrow box of these other gods. Correct. I am not like the other Elohim, right? I have. I am God over all. So that's a good question. But again, in their mind, yeah, that would have been a challenge because 
they're talking about a god that's in Nineveh with you know days and weeks out over there is a completely different god. And yet Jonah sees, because God sent him there, right? God's demonstrating I'm God over everything. Well, and we had that on the boat too. Correct. That same scenario was each of the people on the boat had their own different gods. Exactly. And he said, hey, I'm going yeah. Until all of a sudden, they, the, yeah, the word changes in, in there. It goes from Elohim to Yahweh, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. He's like, oh, I'm the God above all gods. And they're like, ooh, wow, we got to worship this one. Exactly. So the contrast here is he goes from angry to happy. What makes him so happy? A shrub. A shade tree. Puts him there. and It's protection. So the contrast, right? So he feels Protected. Well, and he had already built himself a hut. He built a booth. So it's not interesting. A tabernacle, a booth. Oh, we don't, we don't have. To, oh gosh, we don't have time to go into all the good imagery here. He built a booth, a tabernacle. It's the fact that it's God's favor that's over him by the shrub. It's not just the functionality of it necessarily. Well, God appointed this plant, and this plant can't escape. Oh, a little bit. Okay, no, it won't be long. Uh, this plant is the word hekayon, which is a uh, Hebrew word. The Hebrew root word is uh, kaya, which is to vomit. So God, it's so parallel. <laughs> the fish vomits him up. God appointed a plant that I guess smells and or whatever, like vomit. And, and but he's happy about it. It's a gross plant. <laughs> essentially, essentially it's, not, it's not a beautiful thing that you would plant because you want it, but it did provide exactly what he needed, but it was a, the imagery there, it really was, you had to put up with it. It was a stinky thing, but it protected you, right? But what's ironic here is there's a certain irony here, right? Um, because it says that um, he was happy because the shrub saved him from his misery. There's some irony there, right? Right? Because save that salvation and appointing. God does a lot of appointing in, you know, in Jonah's book here, right? He appointed this, and it saved him from his misery. What's, what's ironic about that? Created his own misery. Yeah, it's probably a very miserable person. He didn't have to be miserable. He put himself in that situation. So Israel is like, oh... If, if Jonah's Israel, like we think he is, Jonah says, I'm going east, I'm going to set back here, and I'm just going to watch God do it, right? And God provides covering for him, gives him shade. It's stinky, but it's something. And then, right, it takes it away. This is so wonderful. I'm so happy. That's the, that's the picture. Like, Israel is happy that they have this ugly-looking tree thing that stinks, keeping the sun off of their head. Right? And then immediately his happiness, because like, we have to keep going, his happiness is short-lived, right? Because the next day, God provides slash appoints, God does a lot of that in Jonah, right? He appoints a worm to attract the shrub and kill it. Some say, um, um, yes, yes, uh, this, this predator comes. Um, and it's interesting to me that the withering of this beloved plant is another tipping point for Jonah. I mean, think about it, right? He survived the storm on the boat. 
right? He handled getting thrown overboard into the sea. In fact, he voluntarily said, toss me there. He didn't get up. He didn't give up, although he was swallowed by a great fish. He was willing to walk into the enemy city of Nineveh and proclaim God's message. He put up with God's repentance toward bringing destruction to Nineveh, although he wasn't happy about that and tried to, to maneuver God into something different. But all of these things he coped with, but the dying plant is just, it was the last straw. What does he say? What's his response? When God appoints first the tree, the stinky one, then he appoints a worm to eat it up. Just tell me anyway. Somebody read the exact words of the CV. It's better for me to die than to live. Where have we seen that before? Yeah, last week's study, the first four verses, right? He's like, is he trying to do the same thing? Remember, we said last week he was trying to kind of put God into a box where God had to choose between his people that he loved and these pagans. Is he trying to do the same thing again, or what? Okay. What are we supposed to What are we supposed to make of this? Okay, I point out that throughout most of Jonah, uh, God is presented as Yahweh, the God of love. Right. Okay. Uh, he, even when he appointed the stinky plant. Right. He turned into Elohim when he appointed the magnet, and he stayed Elohim. Uh, when he asked Jonah again. Right. But then in verse 10, he became Yahweh. So, God kind of did a little switch. I'm not going to be so loving here. I'm going to show you that I am in control. Okay. So, what are we supposed to make of that? That response. You might as well just take my life. Basically, it's all about me. Right? I mean, it's all about me and what, you know. It just feels like it's about, like, I want to be better than these people. And you're telling me I'm no better than these people, and that's the absolute worst. I mean, you think about that for a minute. Think about the, the audacity of that statement. It's like, if I'm not any, any more, if I don't mean any more to you than these people do, then I have no purpose for my existence. Remember, we're talking about Israel. Israel saying, if you love them the way that and forgive them and have mercy on them in the same way that you love and have mercy on us, what's my point in even what's the point of you calling us your people? Because he could have stayed in the city, celebrated with the city of Nineveh with their repentance and rejoiced with them and had shade and yeah, he was so stubborn that he would rather die out in the wilderness than go back to the city and, you know, drink water or eat food. He wanted to be miserable so he can show it off to God and look at how miserable I am. But that was the root belief in the Jewish faith at the time. That they were special. That they were special and that they needed to be apart from... The people who but, but and here's the key, and I love that you brought that up, Mimi, because the the problem is is they had a misunderstanding of what made them special. They weren't special because there was something about them that God said, Oh, you guys are so awesome. I'm gonna use you, right? Their specialness was literally God said, out of all the nations, he goes, I'm gonna deal with you, and through you, 
All of the world is going to be blessed. And they're basically going, here's the peak that we need to settle in on here, right? Israel is saying, if we're successful in what we're supposed to do, i.e. demonstrating right relationship with God, each other, the world around us, if that's what we do and it works, we're better off dead. Like, we're better off not in existence. I mean, it's interesting that even Paul in Romans has to address this question when he addresses the rhetorical question like, well, what's the point of the covenant? What's the point of... Yeah. And his answer is that you, you've been given, we've been made the stewards of the prophets and the oracles and the covenants. It's exactly what you said. It's, it's nothing about us in particular. It is we've been gifted with these graces from God. And notice that as we look down at verses 9 through 11 here, that, that God asked Jonah, Jonah a, almost the same exact question, right? That's his response to his, I want to die. What's his question again? Go ahead, somebody just read it. CEB, so we're all in CEB. God said to Jonah, is your anger about the shrub of the <laughs> To which this time, Jonah decides, yes. I'm going to go ahead and give you an answer. Yeah. Here we go, contrast again. His answer is, yes. I have 100%, I am 100% right in feeling the way that I do. You it's like, it's almost like he doubled down. You, do you got to love that. You got to love it, right? <laughs> so, um, and again, if this is the metaphor, this is the image that God is saying that Israel has done. They doubled down and they told me they're being mad and calling me evil is a good thing. Mm -hmm. That's a big indictment. Is there, I'm just trying to think, is to validate your point of this being Israel and everything and Jonah prophet or not, is there another prophet that challenges God like this? That you can think of that turns away and comes, you know, and just keeps... No, which again would not to this level. I mean, there there are there are prophets that are like, you want me to do what? Yeah. <laughs> you want me to like go sit in a bunch of poop for a while? You want me to lay on my side for so many days? Again, depends on how you want to interpret those things. But yeah, no, this this what's what makes unique. It's more wisdom literature than it is prophetic here, right? But notice God's answer. So Jonah says, "Well, yes, it is." How does God respond to that? Because God gets the last word here, right? You notice this now. So go ahead and read the last words of God. Somebody. But the Lord said, You pitied the shrub for which you didn't work and which you didn't raise. It grew in a night and perished in a night. Yet for my part, can't I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. So what's God's... Let's take it in two parts. First part, what's God's answer to... Jonah's answer. What's he saying? Incorrect. You are incorrect. <laughs> you are incorrect. <laughs> Wrong answer. No soup for you. <laughs> I think right? so What's he saying? I think partially he's validating Jonah's perspective that like these aren't my people. Like in the same way, this isn't your shrub. Like you did nothing for it. It just popped up and there it was. But I still have the right to pay. Hence the use of the word Elohim. Right? I can do what I want because I'm the all-powerful God who can choose somebody else. It's also kind of like you are this tiny little itty-bitty speck that is 
gone in a day. Yeah. In Compared to the hundred and twenty thousand. Everything yeah. else that yeah. I have. Beautiful. Yeah, that contrast again. Put them in its place. There is a little bit of putting in play. And then the final statement that's kind of odd. He says, "Who do you not? Uh, who do not know? One hundred twenty thousand who don't know their right hand from their left hand. It's not found anywhere. I searched this week. It's not found anywhere else in biblical um, or comparative Hebrew literature. It's the only time this is possible. The only time that we know this is what's God saying? Is He calling them a bunch of dumb people?" No, but it's kind of like he's saying, like, people who don't know any better. That's how I'm kind of interpreting yeah. yeah, that's how I was getting it. Yeah, so there's a couple of ways. You know, you don't know your left from your right because you're still a child. You haven't learned. Or you do know your left from your right, but you're so stubborn. You're like, I'm going to go to the right even though I should go to the left. But I think you're, you're right. And because he compares it to people, they're like, they repented, and they don't even know who I am. Yeah. They repented, and yet here you are. You know the left from the right, and you still yes. refuse to go. Yeah, somebody else. Yeah, somebody else was over here. And there could be that he's telling people, by the way, you're supposed to help these people learn their left from their right. Yeah. He failed. Well, he, also, he also mentioned the the animals. <clears throat> uh, a teaching that I've uh, learned this week uh, was when a um, when babies are born they they don't know nothing okay but an, an animal is is born they are born with instincts like it's, it's fire you know an animal is going to go that way from the fire what is a child going to do and i think that's where the compassion is if you know we as parents would be steering our children away instead of difficult to touch the fire he won't be doing that again but uh there is a story that mentions about one hundred twenty thousand persons who um they they were uh, slaves, Hebrew slaves that got released because it was the seventh year, and they actually got to go through the ceremony of, of the going between the animals, you know, the dead animals as, as freedom and all that. But then they got uh, they they got tricked and were turned back, back into slavery. Except a prophet did come along and say this is wrong, and. Um, other people, the, uh, one of the some of the ten tribers, because these were Judean uh, people, the ten tribers took those hundred twenty and clothed them, put sandals on them. They had mercy on them, just like God would have had mercy on this one hundred twenty thousand people. So I think the key is we wrap it up, and I we can keep going. But. I love the fact that in, in a story like this, the way that the, the writer curates it is to drive home the point that, once again, God gets the last word. And when we pick up um, next week, um, we're going to transition because Jesus speaks to this. And you could argue that Jesus is the last word, right? He's the last word. He's the answer to why we don't need to have, we no longer have to search and find, right? And so it's, it's not accidental that when Jesus is trying to explain to himself, to the world around and people listening, who he is and what's getting ready to happen to him, he goes back to the book of John. And he uses that and draws on that imagery to say, 
Now you know who I am. And we're going to see that next week when we get back together. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. And remember, we're saving a seat for you at the table.